Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn, and in today's interview, I'm talking to Laura Morelli about how the artisans of Italy inspire her historical fiction, and also her travel books on how to shop for things like glass and paper uh, in Italy. So we focus particularly on Venice, which I've done a solo episode on before, as well as Florence, and I particularly enjoyed hearing about the gondola makers. Now, it made me think about what I buy when I travel, and mainly it's food, because I love food, or experiences. Um, and I love to go, like, for example, we cycled uh, down the southwest side of India a few years ago and didn't, you know, buy much other than food. And uh, sometimes I'll buy some sarongs, stuff like that. But I prefer to take photos rather than buy souvenirs. But I do have a couple of things that I've bought on trips that have great meaning to me. I have a carved wooden Madonna figure from the West Bank of Israel, which I bought on my trip there in my teens, which I talked about in episode one when I first went to Jerusalem. And it's not a great carving as I didn't have much money, but it represents a point in my life when I had a certain faith and I went to a place that meant a lot to me. So I still have that. I also have, and I have it here in my office, I have a Mulga wood rainbow snake from Uluru, um, once called Ayers Rock in Australia. And I'll talk about that when I do my solo show on Australia, which will be coming up soon. But the snake, I had um, kind of a spiritual experience there and the snake represented, I think my totem animal is probably a snake. So I'll talk about that. And also down in our lounge, I have a Turkish kilim, which I picked up when backpacking around Turkey uh, in the mid 1990s. And my wonderful boyfriend at the time... (laughs) I bought it. I think I bought it in um, on the south coast there. And my boyfriend carried it in his backpack around for a couple of weeks. And so I'm very grateful to him. But uh, the Killam actually features in Morgan's office in Stone of Fire. It's on the floor of her office. And uh, of course, it gets covered in the blood of the bad guys pretty quickly. But it is in the book. And I do put these things into my novels, The some of the important things that I see or that I own. So yeah, that made it into Stone of Fire. So what we buy on our travels can definitely come back into our writing and meeting people along the way can help us tell our stories. So what have you brought back from your travels or is there something you'd like to buy from an authentic artisan to mark the places you have been? So whatever that might be, I hope you enjoy the interview with Laura today. Dr. Laura Morelli has a PhD in art history from Yale, writes award-winning historical fiction based on the true stories of art history and teaches art history online. Welcome, Laura. 
Hello, Joe. I'm so happy to be with you. (laughs) It's great to have you on the show. So start off by telling us what inspired you to study art history in the first place. Tell us a bit more about your background. Sure. Well, um, I'm a Southern girl. I I grew up on the coast of Georgia and um, I was very lucky at a young age to have the opportunity to travel. And I can remember that when I was growing up and people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always said that I wanted to be a writer or an archaeologist. And so I feel like I was fortunate to to be what I set out to be when I was a little girl. Um, But I went to Europe when I was about 12 uh, for the first time. And I remember standing in front of the facade of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris and just being feeling spellbound in front of that Gothic cathedral. And and I think that the architecture of medieval and Renaissance Europe really sparked a passion for me to, it lured me to continue to travel. Um, And I, I always tell the silly story about when I was 16 and I went to Venice for the first time and I fell prey to one of those hawkers in St. Mark's Square, one of those guys that used to hang around and lure um, unsuspecting Americans onto boats <laughs> to head over to the island of Murano to buy Murano glass. And even at a young age, I had this idea that, oh, I'm supposed to come home with Murano glass, but I had no idea why. But it was there was something about the artistic traditions uh, from centuries ago that really sparked a passion and lured me to continue to travel and want to know more. And so um, I sort of put my dream of being a writer on the back burner for a little while because I wanted to follow that trail of art history. And so I went on to uh, pursue advanced studies in art history and um, have taught at the college level. And, and I still have a passion for it. I think it's just the most interesting topic in the whole world. Oh, that's so amazing. And I'm really interested before we get into Venice and your books. Um, what is the, because I, I mean, I obviously I know lots of Europeans who love art history. My dad actually uh, did art and, and taught art history. And um, but to hear someone from Georgia who loves <laughs> kind of European. So w- what are the big uh, like what are the big culture shocks, I guess, for an American out of Georgia going to Europe? Oh, gosh, so many. <laughs> so, you know, here I am just a farm girl. But it's um, it's interesting. I, I think that, you know, all Americans can relate to the idea of, you know, having a having such an, an old past. You know, there's something about feeling connected to people from long ago that I think um, we're a little we're missing a little bit in American culture. And I, I think we're missing, um, you know, that that distant past, those those medieval ancestors, you know, <laughs> and, and um, so I think that feeling connected to your ancestors and to people from long ago is something that is probably just inherent in being human. And um, there's part of it, I think, that's missing a little bit in American culture. And certainly, um, you know, the artists and the artisans that are that you see working in Europe those kinds of things um, are are um, are missing, or they're not the same in in North America, and so um, it is a culture shock for sure. But for me, it, it was. Um, a realization, I think, that there was meaning there, you know, that there was meaning in art and that art was really important. 
And um, so that was something that really sparked um, an interest in me to, to pursue that further. Mm. So you have, you mentioned Venice and you have two novels and a short story set in Renaissance Venice. So tell us about some of the places in Venice that you particularly love, where you can see behind the tourist stuff uh, to the history. Right. Well, you know, as as you know, Venice has become insanely crowded in mm. recent years. But uh, luckily, there are still quiet corners of the city and there are places where you can still find these old world craftsmen and craftswomen hard at work um, creating authentic things like Murano glass or carnival mask, uh, marbled paper, handmade leather book bindings. Um, now, you know, if you've been to Venice, you'll say, oh, well, you can see the glass and the mask everywhere. And that's true, but they're only actually a few places where these really authentic artisans are making everything by hand and in a traditional way. Um, some of these are multi-generational um, family enterprises that have been in business for several hundred years. And so when I set out, um, gosh, two decades ago now to rediscover some of these artisans, that was what really lured me. And um, so in Venice, there are places, um, lace, for example, on the island of Burano, glass, of course, on the island of Murano. There are several mask shops that are still in operation after many generations um, in the, the more main part of Venice. And then my favorite, there are gone makers in several sections of the city. There are only two uh, gondola boatyards that are still uh, in operation where the guys are making every single part of the gondola by hand. There are many gondola workshops across the Venetian Lagoon, but most of the artisans are using um, electric tools, modern woodworking tools, which is fine. But there are a couple of these squarey, these old boatyards, where the artisans are still turning out gondolas 100% by hand. So if you know how to locate these artisans, it's such a fabulous immersive cultural experience. You know, you, you go beyond the, the major sites, you go beyond the tourist traps, and you can really make a connection with someone who's doing something important, doing important work, someone who's passionate about what they do, and someone who's very excited to share it with you as a visitor. And some of these are still really quiet little corners of Venice. And that's one thing I love about it. Mm. So how how have some of those artisans inspired your novels? Do you do you kind of meet a gondola maker and decide to put him in a novel or tell us a bit about some of those um, artisan characters, I guess? Yeah, so I started out, as I mentioned, uh, teaching art history at the college level, and I became interested in these um, these Italian artisans. And I wrote a book called Made in Italy about 20 years ago. And since then, I've written Made in Venice, Made in Florence, Made in Naples and the Amalfi Coast. And um, so when I was in Venice and doing research for the original edition of Made in Italy, I spent a lot of time talking with the gondola makers. And then as I went across the Italian peninsula, I heard the same story over and over again. So what people said was, 
it's so important to us to pass on this torch of tradition. We really feel that it's critical that we show our skills to the next generation, that we teach our children, that we bring our children and we bring our grandchildren into this trade uh, to keep it going. And so I heard it so many times that I thought, gosh, what would happen if the the heir was not willing or not able for some reason to carry on this torch of tradition? And the story sort of popped into my head about this heir to this gondola boatyard and a complicated relationship with his father. And so my first work of historical fiction, The Gondola Maker, is based on that idea and that story. So my fiction is very much rooted in my nonfiction research. And so that's been a lot of fun to go back and forth between nonfiction and fiction, because sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. And that just makes a great nonfiction book. (laughs) And sometimes (laughs) you only know up to a certain bit. And then beyond that, we don't know. And then, of course, that's where the story comes. That's where the fiction begins. And uh, that's a whole different can of worms and, and so much fun. Mm. So what are the what are some of the other places um, that have inspired your your fiction? Because I, what I love about Europe, I think I lived, you know, in Australia and New Zealand for 11 years. And one of the things I missed was that kind of historical architecture that you can actually see in the modern day that can you can set things there in your books, knowing that that building would have looked pretty similar, um, you know, however many hundred years ago or sometimes thousands of years ago. So what are some of the places, either in Venice or other places in Italy, that you've put into your books that you kind of see the history? Well, um, currently I'm finishing a novel that's based on the history of Michelangelo's David or based on the story of its creation. And as you may know, that sculpture is really closely, closely tied to the city of Florence. And so you you can't really talk about Michelangelo's David without talking about the history of Florence around 1500. And, um, you know, it was a very public work of art and just like a work of architecture. And so certainly that has formed uh, some inspiration. Um, Let's see. I've also been writing more about painting recently, which has been interesting. I have a a work a book that I'm working on around Leonardo da Vinci's Lady with the Ermine and uh, what happened to that picture in subsequent centuries. So it's not only uh, places, but also works of art that were created in certain places and times. Mm. So interesting, you mentioned David there. I really in that in the building where it's displayed, um, they have also the slaves coming out of the the blocks, right? Which I I kind of love those even more in a way because they feel like David is so perfect, you know, he's just amazing. And then there are these slaves that are kind of crawling out of these blocks of marble, and they in, kind in of Venice, they, yeah, uh, no, in Florence, in, in Florence, okay, yeah, yeah. There, there are those um, famous slaves in the Ferrari Church in Venice too. I don't know if you saw those when you were there that are just incredible. These gigantic figures. 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, Florence also has um, all those sculptures in the, in the main square, doesn't it? Um, which are just amazing to look at. And I, I love sculpture. It's one of the things I enjoy um, the most, I guess, about, about art. But I, I also have been looking at some of your blog posts. You've got this fantastic uh, article on Venetian paper and bookbinding. And when I, I've been to Venice, obviously, and I've talked about it on this podcast, but I have bought a journal um, in Venice. Uh, so why what what is the history around the sort of bookbinding and paper why is venice important uh, there so venice occupies a really important uh part of book history which i think not many people are aware of and you know again it's just a way that you can explore venice um in differently than other travelers are doing you know if you focus on on bookshops but venice used to be the gateway between the East and the West. And so it was kind of a natural place for book production to take root because Venetian artisans were already very good at gold leaf and leather and paper making and all of the trades that go along with book production. And it just so happens that economically, politically, geographically, they were also really well positioned for some of the earliest um, bookmakers who came who came after Gutenberg, who came after the printing press. And they were able to publish and distribute books widely throughout Europe. And so the Venetian artisans really were well known for, uh, for bookbinding. And the trade of bookbinding and publishing then sort of filtered south from there into Florence and and other parts of Italy. But certainly Venice played an important role. There were several uh, artisanal bookmaking and bookbinding shops in Venice up until recently. In recent years, unfortunately, a couple of the really historic bookbinders closed. I was so sad. Mm. But um, you can still go to Venetian bookshops and buy individual folios, little pages that have that were torn out of historic books long ago, and you can buy them and have them framed or something like that. And they make wonderful souvenirs. And certainly English people have been have been uh, bringing home things like that from the Italian peninsula for a couple hundred years already, right? The grand tourist. <laughs> oh, yeah, the grand tour is a big thing. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you also, uh, one of the other thing that is kind of, uh, that Venice is famous for, the carnival masks. And uh, you and I are both interested in the plague uh, period, and I'm yes. in one of um, my most recent novel I'm writing is called Map of Plagues, and there is a, a plague mask in it. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what what's happening with those masks? I mean, the, the carnival is kind of a, a trope in a way. Um, is it is it all just a tourist trap, or are there still artisans around those masks as well? Um, there are um, many mask, unfortunately, in Venice today that are imported from elsewhere and passed off as authentic. And so that's one of my missions in my guidebook series is to lead people beyond the tourist traps to discover the more authentic makers. There are a handful of excellent mask makers in Venice. Um, they're a, a an affordable, portable souvenir. Um, you can take mask making classes, which is super fun. Um, and specifically about the plague doctor mask, which is really one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> it's um, it's not 
it was not originally intended for carnival. It its use in as a carnival mask is a is a modern thing, but the um, the plague doctor mask was actually invented in the 1600s by a French doctor who was looking to curb the contagion across France, and so he invented this mask and the Venetians being mask wearing you know, for many centuries from Carnival just uh, latched onto it immediately. But the idea was to push various medicinal herbs down that long beak bird-like nose and that that was supposed to, they believed, help you know, protect the doctor. And he also wore a long cloak and gloves and he carried a cane so that he could sort of flip people over and, and examine <laughs> their buboes without getting infected himself. So it's a very scary looking <laughs> mask. A lot of people find it very creepy, but it has a really cool history. Oh yeah, I mean it, it is super super creepy, and that I think that's the other interesting thing um, about Europe. And you know, we were saying before we started recording that there is always a dark side to these ancient cities because people have been living and dying there for you know a long, long time. So what what are the sort of are there any interesting things you found that have inspired your stories on the, in the darker side uh, of Venice or Florence or Italy in general? Yes, I have. Um three different short stories that are set during plague times, um, including one that you can download free from my website uh, that's set during the 1610 plague of Venice. Uh, it's called Bridge of Size, and um, you can get that free on my website at lauramorelli.com. I also have uh, the first novel in my Venetian artisan series is called The, Pla the Painter's Apprentice, and it's also set uh, during the 1510 plague of Venice. So I just I find it interesting how people uh, dealt with challenges in the age before modern medicine. And I, I, I do think it makes for an interesting setting and set of challenges for a fictional character. Yeah, because I've uh, in writing Map of Plays, I kind of you realise that it would have been like one of our sort of post-apocalyptic movies, you know, uh, so many people dying um, and not being able to do anything about it. So did you have you discovered any other interesting places in Venice that are related to the, the plague? There is um, the Lazzaretto Nuovo, which is the plague island off the coast of Venice. There is one Vaporetto that goes there, I think, one day a week. It's not very easy to get to, but you can actually visit um, one of the buildings that was used as a plague hospital in pre-modern times. And it was a, a, a quarantine island. Uh, it was a place where ships would be. Uh, docked off the coast. In fact, the word quarantine is a Venetian word because a quarantena was 40 days. And so the ships had to stay off the shore there for 40 days to make sure that no one was sick. And then they would allow them to come into the ports of Venice. But um, you can visit this plague island, which is a, very interesting. And, and if you are interested in, in the dark side of culture, that's a great place to visit. Oh, yeah. 
love, I mean, I, I, I you need to go there. <laughs> oh yes, I haven't been to that one, but in in London, of course, we have a ton of plague pits. So you know, right. they, you dig down in the ground in London and, and you hit a plague pit, which is which is quite uh, hilarious. But um, Betsy, getting back to your uh, uh, your buying book, so you have these shopping guides, which I think are brilliant because uh, one of the things that, as you said, your first experience in Venice and certainly mine as well, is getting ripped off in the tourist traps. So if we want to buy something that is, um, you know, truly artisanal and we have some budget, because I think it's important to note that if you want something good, you're going to pay for it. Um, What should people do in terms of, um, you know, trying to find those? Yeah. So I think that, um, that authentic souvenirs don't necessarily have to be expensive. Some of them are quite affordable, but I always tell people it might just be the most quote unquote valuable thing that you bring back from a trip, not in monetary terms, but if you go to an artisan studio, you come face to face with the maker of your souvenir, you might be involved in choosing some aspect of it. If you go, for example, to Positano and you have leather sandals made, you can choose what color leather you want, what color color sole you want. You can talk to the person who's making it. Um, They're not super expensive. You can come home with not only a great authentic Italian souvenir, but you can make a connection with the person who made it. And to me, that's part of the most valuable part of traveling overseas is that cultural interaction. And so, as I say, it may just be the most valuable thing that you come home with. Um, You know, that's really the best way to avoid getting ripped off is just to buy directly from the source. You get the best possible price, uh, you meet the person, and you know you're buying something authentic. So definitely go to the artisan studios. And I've never found anyone who uh, was rude or (laughs) felt like they were being interrupted. Um, As you probably know, Italians are extremely friendly and so happy to share their their work and their passion with you. Mm. And I I think you're right there. I mean, another tip is don't buy anything in St. Mark's Square or any of the streets directly (laughs) around it. Absolutely. No, do not buy anything right around the Leaning Tower of Pisa, the Coliseum, cruise ship ports. That's kind of common sense. But beyond that, sometimes it can be a little overwhelming. I think people, for example, one of the slipperiest slopes in Italian shopping is buying leather in Florence. (laughs) that's really tricky to get right. And um, so there are a lot of tips and tricks to it. So if you want to know more, you can check out my shopping guides. Everything's at lauramorelli.com. If you're going to Venice or Florence or Rome or Naples or the Amalfi Coast, um, Sicily, Sardinia, um, I've covered all the regions. Oh yeah, and next time I go back, I'm taking your carnival mask thing. I'm going to get one. I was just like, because whenever <laughs> I've been, in fact, I found a really good shop with kind of steampunk carnival mask, yes. and I wish I'd have bought one. I saw one, and I was like, oh, why do I need one of those? And it's not about need; <laughs> it's about uh, artistic appreciation. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> Those are really fun. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to buy one that's, you know, authentic. 
authentic to 1700. I mean, you can buy something like a steampunk mask that's really fun. Yeah. That's completely handmade. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I, I did want to ask you about limoncello because you did put that on your website. Um, so lemon, tell, tell people what limoncello is. I mean, personally, I don't like it, but uh, tell us about it. <laughs> so limoncello is one of the, uh, the joys of the Italian table. And if you've ever traveled, um, especially in the South, they bring it to you at no charge to your table after dinner. And it's a, a wonderful digestivo after dinner uh, drink. You probably don't like it because maybe you didn't have a really good one. The bottles can vary so dramatically from one bottle to the next. And if you get a bad bottle, it tastes like window cleaner. Yes. <laughs> Or and cough medicine. A, or cough medicine. But if you get a good bottle, it tastes like you're drinking a ray of sunshine or something. It's, it has this wonderful flavor. So the lemons are, um, they're, they're grown in a protected area along the Amalfi Coast in Capri, uh, just south of Naples. And there are a couple of different varieties of lemons. And just like grapes and vinegar and some of the other uh, world-class culinary products of Italy. They're protected by the government and by the region. Um, they are really, limoncello is really nothing more than lemon peels, sugar, and alcohol. And that's it. <laughs> so it's a really simple recipe, but like most Italian cuisine, the simplicity of it is deceptive because, as I said, there's a huge range of quality and taste and flavor and family secrets and things that go into it. Um, people have different um, types of lemons that they use, different types of alcohol they use. They might put it, some might put it in a cellar, some might put it in a closet. They, they're all these little, uh, very well-kept family secret, secrets around limoncello. Some of the uh, larger producers have tours. You can go in and watch the machines and the bottles going through. But there are also smaller producers in the area and families. Uh, if you go to Amalfi or Sorrento, there are lots of shops selling uh, limoncello. It's very inexpensive. You can just go have a seat and try and taste test. <laughs> I can hardly think of a more fun thing to do on a, on a hot, sunny afternoon. <laughs> I think I'll stick to my gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, that's fantastic. And I definitely, yeah, everyone has to try it. If you're in Italy, you you have to have a couple of limoncellos. Uh, it's part of the part of the deal, really, isn't it? It is. And, you know, fun fact is it was probably invented by a group of nuns on the Amalfi Coast, which I absolutely love. <laughs> they were they were known for these drinks called Rosoli, which were kind of medicinal, hardcore alcohol that they would give to people who came into the convent who were sick, because certainly in the late Middle Ages and, and even later, um, anyone who was sick was, was going to the monastery or the convent to get medical care. And so it's believed that some of these um, liqueurs that are famous around the Amalfi Coast came out of that tradition of the convent and their medicinal liqueur. Oh, that's cool. That's a bit like Bel Belgium, where it's famous for the, the monks' beer that they make yeah. there. Yeah, there you go. It's, <laughs> it's very important. Okay, so a bit of a broader question. What does travel mean to you? I guess, you know, someone who, who's from Georgia, you know, what, what does travel mean and how does travel inspire your writing? 
Oh, so in so many ways. I mean, I always feel inspired when I go somewhere new and it helps me, you know, see my my own home in a different way. And um, I, I think we our our brains are kind of wired to look for the familiar and for, you know what's what's similar and what's different and uh, you know I had an interesting experience recently I was in Venice and I flew out of the Venice airport and um I looked out the window at this vast sparkling lagoon with all of these low-lying sandbars and, you know, just the sea that seems like it's going to threaten to overtake everything. Um, and But yet so beautiful and so fragile looking from the air. And then um, a, some hours later, I landed um, just, you know, at a small airport near my home and on the coast of Georgia, and I live on a barrier island. And so when you look out the window, there's that beautiful sparkling sea and those low-lying sandbars and that fragile environment. And so it's just fascinating to sit to, you know, and I thought, wow, I went to another world and to, you know, another place to this mythic Venice. And then I came home to this very familiar place that also, you know, from the air just looked almost like Venice. <laughs> it was a really interesting parallel that I had never really seen before. So I think seeing the world from the air like that is, um, is inspiring in itself. Yeah, that's really interesting. And while you were talking, it got me thinking, you talked about the difference, the things that are different, and you notice the things that are different when you're not from that place. This is something I'm kind of obsessed with at the moment is, can you write more effectively about a place if you're, or not effectively, but the writing of a native person. So you're writing about Georgia, for example. And then if I wrote about the same places in Georgia as an outsider, um, you know, do you know what I mean? It's sort of you writing about yeah. Italy. You're not, you're not an Italian. You're not from Venice, but you're writing about Venice and you see things as an outsider that people who are Venetian don't see. So do, does that, does that resonate? The kind of the difference is important to see as an outsider. Yeah, a hundred percent. I understand what you're what you're saying. I mean, um, you may know the work of Frances Mays, the author of Under the Tuscan Sun. She is also from South Georgia and also has a passion for Italy. And, you know, the way that she writes about Italy is very much like you're describing. She sees the things, you know, from an outsider's point of view. And um, but yet she just recently published a book called Under Magnolia that is a memoir about her life in Georgia. And it was so interesting to read it because, of course, then that's my world. You know, that's what I'm familiar with. And yet she was able to write about it in the same way and in this, in this beautiful language and seeing it almost like an outsider. And I thought, wow, I'm not sure I could do that. I'm not sure I could write about my own uh, home and my own place in the same way that I can write about a place that feels so foreign and different. So it is a really interesting idea. I mean, people say, write what you know, and I'm not sure that's exactly right in every case. <laughs> oh, no, I think it's write what you're interested in. You know, yes. like we're both interested yeah. in the plague. We we don't have to have the plague to write <laughs> no, about it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so apart from your own books, um, what are some books you would recommend uh, that uh, either talk about art history or travel or Venice, if you like? 
So there's so many books that I love that are historical novels based on works of art. And there's really a long tradition of these. If you um, you may know the agony and the ecstasy from the 1950s that was about Michelangelo. Um, but some of the more recent versions of art historical novels are some of my favorites. Tracy Chevalier's Girl with the Pearl Earring, um, Susan Vreeland's The Passion of Artemisia, Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, these books that are that have works of art at the center are just uh, really my kind of read. So I, I really enjoy those. Mm. And uh, I think I'll put Under Magnolia on there as well, because um, that's, you know, George, it's funny, we're talking about Italy and now I'm thinking about Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> which is what's so great about this show you get ideas of lots of different places because of course to me Georgia is um foreign you know right. I've, been, I've been to the <laughs> south um and it is quite different you know and what's so funny actually you'll laugh at this I've been sick like my stomach gets sick when I'm in the south of the USA whereas I've traveled to India and I just am fine so it's really oh. interesting what's foreign to us and what's not right Maybe it's too much barbecue or, or cheese grits. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. But no, that's that's fantastic. So where can people find you and your books and your courses online? You can find everything at lauramorelli.com. Uh, you can download the free short story there. You can take a look at my books. You can sign up for an art history class. I'm just about to um, launch a new course on the ancient Etruscans, which I'm super excited about. So if that uh, rings uh, any kind of interest, then come on over and take a look at that. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Laura. That was great. Thank you, Joe. I enjoyed it so much. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.